So what's the vibe at Mar-a-Lago like today? The lead starts now. Breaking news, Rudy Giuliani responding after federal agents raided his New York City apartment. What might that mean for his former client? And in just a few hours, President Biden will make his very first joint address to Congress in a pandemic and with the wounds of the MAGA insurrection still fresh on the scene. Plus, an autopsy showing he was shot in the back of the head by police. His family called it an execution one week later. A judge makes a key ruling on the body cam video in the shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with the politics lead, an extraordinary move that had to have been approved by the highest levels of the U.S. Department of Justice. Sources telling CNN that law enforcement officials today raided the New York City apartment and office of Rudy Giuliani, who was President Trump's personal attorney, of course. This raid, first reported by the New York Times, included agents seizing Giuliani's electronic devices to advance the criminal investigation into the former New York City mayor. It's unusual, to say the least, for prosecutors to execute a search warrant on an attorney, because theoretically that could uncover privileged attorney-client information. Keep in mind, since 2019, CNN has been reporting that the feds were investigating Giuliani's lobbying activities in Ukraine while he was also simultaneously Trump's personal attorney. Let's start today's reporting with CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, do we know what the feds were looking for? Well, Jake, I spoke with Mr. Giuliani's attorney, and he described the search warrant that was executed on his client this morning. He said it specifically indicates that this is related to investigation into possible violations of foreign lobbying rules. Now, if you are lobbying or working on behalf of a foreign government, you are required to disclose that to the Justice Department. Now, I'm told that the warrant also seeks communications between Mr. Giuliani and other individuals, including a columnist, John Solomon, who wrote a lot about Ukraine in the lead up to the election. Now, at this point, Mr. Giuliani has not been charged with any wrongdoing. But as you noted, it is incredibly unusual to execute a warrant like this on a lawyer, especially a lawyer for a former president. And again, this is not the only lawyer who received uh, this kind of treatment today where an, a search warrant was executed. So showing up on the doorsteps of attorneys and seizing electronic devices, incredibly unusual. And these foreign lobbying violations um, prior to the Trump administration were mostly treated as paperwork crimes. So a lot of questions right now about whether this investigation has expanded beyond just foreign lobbying. And Paula, uh, as we noted, this kind of raid had to have been approved at the highest mm-hmm. levels of the Justice Department have we heard any comment from the feds about the decision to go through with the search? I, I, I can't recall a search of a lawyer's residence slash office in such a high profile way since Trump's previous attorney, Michael Cohen. Exactly. That's the precedent that jumps to mind uh, for me as well. This would have had to have been approved at the highest levels, likely the deputy attorney general, either the former acting deputy attorney general or the recently installed deputy attorney general. Lisa Monaco would have had to have been aware of this and sign off on this. This is a big test for the Biden administration. There's been this lingering question. What were they going to do with these legal issues that they inherited from the previous administration related to the former president and his inner circle? And the message is clear today. They are not going to turn a blind eye to any questions of possible criminal wrongdoing just to bring the country together. And we should note uh, that Biden kept in in office the U.S. attorney in Delaware who was uh, investigating his son Hunter 
uh, and, and apparently keeping hands off on that. It, it wasn't just Giuliani's property search today, though, as you alluded to. Uh, one of Giuliani's allies was also a target uh, of a warrant. That's right. Another one of former President Trump's lawyers, Victoria Tenzing, she also had a visit from federal investigators this morning who executed a warrant at her home and reportedly seized her cell phone. Now, a spokesperson for Mr. Ten Ms. Tenzing said that she would have been happy to turn over any relevant documents. All they had to do was ask. Now, the spokesperson says that she was informed she is not a target of the investigation. But again, she is an attorney, someone who formerly worked to represent a former president, and they seized her cell phone. All right, Paula, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Washington correspondent uh, for The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. She helped break this story for The Times. Uh, Maggie, uh, good to see you. Any sense of why now were the feds waiting until Trump was well out of office. We're almost at 100 days for Biden to pursue the search warrant. Does this feel like a coincidence? Well, Jake, it's an excellent question. I don't think it's time to the 100 days. I do think that the timing that matters, uh, at least on, on the face of it, it looks as if having Lisa Monaco sworn in at the Department of Justice uh, played or could have played a role in, in the timing of this. We know that um, law enforcement had hoped to, or at least been moving toward uh, some effort to procure these devices and to and to execute a similar search on Giuliani's uh, property and on his communications uh, last summer, uh, and that did not move forward while President Trump was still in office. So I think the timing is less about a, a capstone for for Biden than it is simply about new officials coming in at DOJ. That is going to invite or at least will prompt some criticism from uh, the right and from President Trump's, uh, President Biden's critics uh, that this was, you know, some sort of a political engagement because it, they waited until there was a changeover at DOJ. The argument I think you're going to hear from people around President Biden is these were things that should have gone forward under former President Trump and did not for potentially political reasons. Well, explain. Lisa Monaco was just uh, confirmed as, a, as the deputy attorney general. She's uh, widely respected. She enjoyed a pretty strong uh, confirmation. Explain why, I mean, assuming that this uh, supposition is correct, why her going into that position would be necessary, uh, why M Attorney General Merrick Garland wouldn't be good uh, enough, for example. Because she is somebody whose office this would go by, and it would, it would generally go under the DAG, uh, the Deputy Attorney General. Uh, it, it certainly would be something that the Attorney General was aware of, but I think that having the top leadership in place in both positions uh, is something that the Biden administration was looking for to take. This is, a, a, as you've noted, an extraordinary step. It not just involves, it not only involves a lawyer, it involves a former U.S. attorney himself and somebody who had been uh, a lawyer to a former president. So I think given all of that, there there was a desire to check as many boxes as possible. As you note in your reporting, this search warrant does not explicitly accuse Giuliani of any specific wrongdoing, but prosecutors would need to convince a judge. I mean, it would be theoretically a high hurdle, I would think, that they believed they needed to do the search because they believed that a crime was committed. Again, this is obviously all speculative um, until we actually see the documentation, but what might the actual crime be here? Look, Jack, I don't want to say more than we actually know in terms of the reporting, but what we do know this investigation has related to is uh, Giuliani's, uh, you know, lobbying on behalf of Ukrainian officials while former President Trump was in office, while Rudy Giuliani was attempting to dig up dirt on the Bidens, on President Biden and his son Hunter, uh, that he was hoping to use to damage uh, then-candidate Joe Biden politically. Uh, as far as we know, it relates to that. But as you know, these investigations start one place, and then they go off into other 
other directions. Look back at Michael Cohen, uh, former President Trump's former personal lawyer, who initially uh, was touched on as part of the special counsel probe uh, by uh, by Robert S. Mueller. Uh, that went off in a bunch of different directions, uh, and and Cohen still remains the only person who got significant jail time in any of this. Uh, I think that that is the risk for Giuliani: is that these probes begin in a certain place. And as he knows better than anybody, they can go off in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking now I'm having an image of four seasons total landscaping uh, in Philadelphia, right near the Tacony Palmyra Bridge. And, and Giuliani, the, one of the main boosters of Trump's big lie about mm-hmm. the election, the false claim after false claim, bogus testimony around the country that there was mass voter fraud in the election. Uh, take a listen. So over the next 10 days, We get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. Let's have trial by combat. I'm willing to stake, I'm willing to stake my reputation, the president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality there. Well, that aged well. Uh, we should note that Trump did not preemptively pardon Giuliani before he left office. Uh, do you anticipate that the former president uh, in Mar-a-Lago will come out and try to defend him since Giuliani <clears throat> did so much of Trump's bidding? I think that there is his temptation to say something is going to be strong. I think that there is a question um, in his circle right now as to whether any of this could end up touching on on Trump in some way. And at the moment, we don't know that beyond the obvious that this all grew out of the uh, first, the circumstances of the first impeachment of former President Trump. Um, but look, generally speaking, uh, former President Trump tends to say something when even when a lot of his advisors uh, would rather that he didn't. Um, I don't think it's <coughs> uncomfortable. All right, Maggie Haberman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, Coming up, want to see history tonight? Just look behind the president during his big speech. All the firsts, all the security, and how he plans to sell his bold vision for reshaping America. That's next. And the body cam video of the police shooting of a black man in North Carolina. Will the public get to see it? That ruling ahead. Stay with us. back with our politics lead in just a few hours. President Joe Biden gives his first joint address to Congress. It will be unlike any presidential speech we've seen before because of the coronavirus pandemic. Most of the fanfare you would normally expect to see will be missing. The majority of the 1600 seat House chamber will be empty. Only a limited amount of lawmakers can attend. Guests are not allowed in the chamber. Earlier today, the president spoke at length with a number of TV news anchors, including me, and one of the points he made on the record uh, was beyond the initial challenges of stemming the tide of the pandemic and helping those suffering economically because of it, he felt he needed to succeed because the American people needed to have faith that their government could actually function. Quote, we can't afford to lose out of the box, he says, he told his staff. We cannot afford to lose this first effort, he said because he sees what's next as a major test of whether democracy can thrive in the 21st century. Chinese President Xi is betting against it, he said. Quote, this government is founded on this notion that, you know, sounds corny, we the people, Biden told us, quote, and there's nothing we're going to be able to get done unless we can convince the American people it's possible 
to do it, unquote. President Biden also told us, quote, everybody talks about can I do anything bipartisan? Well, I got to figure out if there's a party to deal with. We need a Republican Party. We need another party, whatever you call it, that's unified, not completely splintered and fearful of one another, unquote. Among the major points we expect to hear tonight, President Biden will unveil a new $1.8 trillion American Families Plan focused on elder care, child care, and paid family leave. We're going to cover all the angles of the speech this evening from the White House to Capitol Hill. Let's start with CNN's Phil Manningly. And Phil, this new plan will likely face some pushback, not just from Republicans, but also progressive Democrats. Walk us through uh, what exactly is in it. Yeah, Jake, the president's obviously going to be on center stage tonight, but so will the sheer ambition of his policy proposals. That $1.8 trillion plan that would largely reshape the social safety net, really transform government spending in the U.S. to a degree we haven't seen in several decades. You're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars for child care, for paid family leave, universal pre-K, free community college, also subsidies, an extension of expanded subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. The president is going to push forward laying this on the table for forthcoming congressional negotiations. But Jake, as you noted, Democrats, some progressives, already upset that it didn't include two key elements, expanding Medicare and prescription drug cost uh, proposal. Uh, some moderate Democrats, like Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, already concerned that it costs too much money. So they're going to have to thread a needle here intraparty, not just with Republicans, and it's something the president's going to lay out tonight. Yeah, all told, it's something like $6 trillion in, in new spending uh, proposals. Uh, CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill for us. And Manu, uh, we know the speech is going to look radically different from what we usually ex- expect from a joint address. Walk us through exactly what those of us watching will see. Yeah, many fewer members. This is probably about roughly 200 total attendees in the House chamber. Typically for an event like this, 1,600 people would be in the chamber. But because mainly because of COVID restrictions, they are limiting attendance coming from the Speaker's office. Members will be scattered about. They'll be sitting uh, apart, not next to each other. They are supposed to be sitting on both on the House floor and also on the upstairs gallery. That gallery typically would be reserved for guests. Members will not be allowed to, to bring guests. Also, there'll be things such as you can't make physical contact. They're not supposed to be shaking hands or fist bumping or elbow bumping. We'll see if they'll actually listen to those rigorous requirements that also force the members to actually prove that they have either been vaccinated or that they have had a negative COVID test within the last two days. So uh, very uh, strict uh, rules here for members. They have limited uh, for each of the four caucuses on Capitol Hill have given limited number of tickets. They have doled out those tickets accordingly. Democrats had a lottery for tickets on the Senate side. And then on the Republican side, it's been first come, first serve. And they've had a harder time getting House Republicans to come back from the retreat in Orlando to come tonight. So we'll see how many Republicans ultimately show up, but still much different than any of their speech that we've seen, Jake. All right, Manu, thanks so much. A week after police killed Andrew Brown Jr. in North Carolina, a judge rules... The public will have to wait longer to see the body cam videos. North Carolina's attorney general will be here to react live next. In our national lead, a North Carolina judge denied requests to release the body cam video of the deadly police shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. last week. And while the judge did grant permission for the family to see the five additional videos, the public We'll have to wait until an investigation is complete. Joining us now, North Carolina's Attorney General Josh Stein. Uh, General Stein, thanks for joining us. So you called for the release of the body cam footage four days ago. You have not seen the footage. What's your reaction to this ruling by the judge? 
Uh, thanks, Jake. And before I answer that question, I just want to say a word about the family of Andrew Brown Jr. You know, they're they're suffering right now, and it's a tragedy when any whenever anyone's life is cut short, and they're suffering, and people in Elizabeth City are, and just want them to know that there are many people who uh, feel for them. Uh, I think that transparency is absolutely critical in matters like this. Look, the the police exist to protect the public, and we have them wear body and dash cams in order to provide transparency, to have a, a an account of what happened, and that should belong to the people. That's why I called for the release to be done with uh, without any undue delay. Um, the uh, judge has argued that there needs to be some more time for the investigation. Uh, North Carolina's law, I think, actually has it backwards. It creates uh, the default that it's not a public record and the public has to somehow convince a judge to grant it. And I think it needs to be the other way, where by date certain it is released to the public unless law enforcement can prevail that there's some investigative reason why it should not yet be released. So the judge also ruled that family members will be allowed to see the remaining videos, but that the officers' faces and names uh, will be protected. Um, do you agree with that decision? Well, I, I, I haven't seen the video, so I can't speak to exactly what happened or what they represent. Um, so I, I can't speak to the wisdom. I do think it's imperative that the family be able to see it as quickly as possible so that they can process this tragedy. Um, so I do I do support that. So I don't know what happened, right? I mean, I didn't see it. I haven't seen the video. Um, but the family described Brown's final moments as an execution. One of the family lawyers says Brown was not moving in a menacing way. Uh, there's this independent autopsy that says he was shot in the back of the head. Uh, but the North Carolina DA today said that the family's and the family's lawyer's versions are false and that Brown was was backing up his car into police officers. Uh, I mean, the video would clear up what actually happened, one would think. That, that's why transparency is so important, Jake. I mean, the reason we have video is so that we can know what happened, whether the uh, person was in the wrong or the police was in the wrong or nobody was in the wrong. That, that's what we have to find out. And the video will tell us that. Uh, and uh, transparency is critical. I, I don't want to speak to the uh, specifics of what happened in this case because the investigation is still ongoing. But it, it is a tragedy whenever there is a police involved shooting and we want as few as them uh, as few of them as possible. And so we have to do a better job making sure that our criminal justice system lives up to the ideal that's on the face of the Supreme Court building. Those words are equal justice under law. And, and Jake, we don't have that right now. Black people and white people are not treated the same. If you look at the criminal justice process from start to finish, uh, black people have disparate treatment every, every step along the way, including the percentage of people who experience police-involved shootings. So we have a lot of work to do to improve our criminal justice system. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation is leading the probe with local authorities. Now, I understand this department falls under the, the governor's purview, not yours. But you're the chief law enforcement officer of the state of North Carolina, right? Are, are you going to have any role in what they're looking into? Well, I, I commend the sheriff. He immediately called in the State Bureau of Investigation to conduct the investigation. And he's also asked for an external sheriff's agency to come in 
and do an internal review to see if internal policies were followed. And when you have a police-involved shooting, it raises the question of trust. For police to succeed in our communities, there has to be trust. That's why I think an independent investigation is advisable and why I'm chairing a task force to promote a lot of reforms to our criminal justice system in North Carolina. And one of our recommendations was not only an independent investigation, but an independent prosecution, whether that's my office, whether it's another district attorney or the conference of district attorneys, we want the public to have confidence in whatever decisions are rendered at the end of this investigation, uh, that that decision was made with no bias involved. And I say that with no criticism of District Attorney Womble, it may end up being the exact same decision he would make, but the people would have more confidence. Well, that's the thing. I mean, those of us who want there to be successful police forces in this country uh, also feel uh, that there there needs to be this degree of trust a level of trust. Uh, We still don't know how many deputies were on the scene, how many of them fired their their guns, how many rounds were fired. I mean, beyond not releasing the video, this opaqueness, this lack of transparency, even if nobody, no police officer, no deputy did anything wrong, they are hurting themselves by being so... Um, refusing to share this information by being so non-transparent. Police cannot succeed without the trust of the people they serve and protect. I mean, it's axiomatic. It it has to be. And the way we create that trust is transparency. Nobody expects anyone to be perfect. But if somebody is not willing to put whatever happened up to public review— and rigor and be willing to examine what happened and ask themselves, did we do everything right? Is there anything we could have done differently or better? Um, Then we're not going to gain that trust. And that has to be our, our driving force. North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein, thank you so much. Good to see you. Thanks, Jake. President Biden is set to give his first speech to Congress with painful reminders of the insurrection all around him as we find out another warning was ignored before that MAGA mob attacked the Capitol. Then, in America, you are at least 20 times more likely to die from this than if you lived in another developed country, the growing urgency to treat a different epidemic as a public health crisis. Stay with us. Practically every day we report on a shooting death somewhere in the U.S. You've seen it this hour. We pay attention to mass shootings if the death toll is especially horrific. In his speech this evening, President Biden is expected to yet again push Congress for some action when it comes to guns. CNN national correspondent Erica Hill has been looking into how we as a society got to this place where too many Americans have practically become numb to the number of shootings and all the blood and the mass deaths. Tragedy on a near daily basis. Three shootings at Atlanta area spas where at least seven people have been killed. Breaking overnight, another mass shooting in the U.S. At least eight people were killed at a FedEx warehouse near the airport in Indianapolis. I think it's difficult to not be numb. The numbers are so huge, it's almost unimaginable. Almost unimaginable and yet increasingly predictable. 
on average, is probably at least 20 times the likelihood that someone in the United States will die of a gun death than people in other developed countries. It's not just mass shooting events, which are only a small fraction of gun-related deaths in the U.S. In 2019, more than 60 percent were suicides. And every day, an average of over 300 people are injured by a firearm, according to researchers at Penn and Columbia. Our gun violence epidemic is a uniquely American problem. But the firearm holds a different place in our American mythology and history than it does in any other country. And we have to be able to hold both of those things as true. Which is why, in a nation that now has more guns than people, there's a renewed push to address this violence as a public health crisis. The American Medical Association began using the term in 2016. Yet recent polling from Quinnipiac finds most Americans don't agree. 45% of people say this is a public health crisis. 41% say it's a problem, but not a crisis. What do you make of that? I think those who say it's not a crisis just haven't been touched by it yet. Dr. Megan Ranney believes a public health approach rooted in science, not politics, has proven results. Back in the 70s, our rate of deaths from car crashes was at its highest ever. And we addressed it like a public health crisis. We did research. We re-engineered cars. We educated people. And by taking that approach, we reduced the number of car crash deaths by more than two-thirds. One hurdle with this public health crisis, that critically important data. Federal research funding for firearm-related violence nearly dried up in the mid-90s when the Republican-led Congress, with backing from the NRA, threatened to cut CDC funding if the agency continued to study gun injuries and deaths, accusing the CDC of promoting gun control and effectively halting that public health research. A big thing is we really don't know what we don't know. Does open carry, is that a good or a bad thing? We know a lot of guns are stolen. What happens to these guns? We know almost nothing. We know just a little about gun training. Does gun training really matter? What we do know, gun violence has a broad, lasting impact. No one wants to see themselves, their loved one, or someone in their community get hurt or killed with a gun. And when we start with that, then we can start to have discussions about how do you make guns safer and how do you make the people behind them safer. Jake, Dr. Rennie believes you have to treat both the object, the gun here, and the person. As you noted, we are expecting President Biden to push Congress when it comes to addressing guns. But the reality is, despite overwhelming public support, for example, on background checks, a recent Quinnipiac poll found 89% of respondents support background checks for all buyers and 85% of gun owners do. But much of that, as we know, is stalled in Congress. Where there is movement, though, Jake, is at the state level. And we're going to take a closer look at that for you tomorrow. All right, Erica Hill with the very first installment of our series on guns in America. Thank you so much. More troubling details on that MAGA insurrection of January 6th, even as President Biden prepares to give his speech to Congress tonight at the scene of the crime. In our politics lead today, just hours from now, President Biden will deliver his first joint address to Congress in the room that turned to a crime scene on January 6th. The insurrection now a symbol of how divided our country has become. And now we're learning more about blatant warning signals that were missed by officials leading up to the siege on the Capitol, as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports. 
The Capitol is still fortified with fencing protecting entry points. And tonight, President Biden will be there for his first address to Congress, the most high-profile event inside the Capitol since the January insurrection. And it will happen as the court is releasing new videos of the assault on three Capitol Police officers, including Brian Sicknick, who died a day later after several strokes, which the medical examiner attributed to natural causes. This new video shows one of the men accused in the assault, Julian Cater, with his arm stretched out, seeming to spray officers with what prosecutors have simply described as a chemical spray. You can see at least one officer recoiling from the irritant. How we managed to make it out uh, of that day without more significant loss of life is a miracle. D.C. police officer Michael Fanone ran to the Capitol as soon as he heard the radio calls and was almost immediately caught in the middle of a violent mob. I felt like they were trying to kill me. I thought that that was a distinct possibility. In this exclusive interview with CNN, Officer Fanone said the months since January 6th have been an emotional roller coaster, especially in the face of repeated efforts to downplay the violence coming from Republicans and the former president. Some of them went in and they're, they're hugging and kissing the police and the guards. You know, they had great relationships. Some of the terminology that was used, like hugs and kisses and, uh, you know, very fine people is like very different from what I experienced. And I experienced the most brutal, uh, savage, uh, hand-to-hand combat of my entire life, let alone my policing career. An experience that may not have been so traumatic if repeated warnings on the eve of January 6th had not been ignored by Capitol security officials. Internal emails obtained by CNN document how several troubling social media posts were flagged to officials. One said, we will storm government buildings, kill cops, kill security guards, kill federal employees and agents. Despite the warnings, the emails show the chief security officer for the architect of the Capitol seemed to dismiss the chatter and asked her security team to update her when there was evidence of credible threats, to which an off-duty officer responded, there weren't any. Officials at the Capitol have not responded to requests for comment. And those seemingly ignored email warnings will be a crucial line of inquiry for congressional investigators who are examining these wide-ranging security failures leading up to and on January 6th. And, you know, Jake, Senate sources are telling our team that even after these months of interviews and hearings and reviewing documents, it's really still not clear why these Capitol officials were so unwilling to regard all of these social media posts as really credible and legitimate intelligence. It's a big question. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us here in the Bureau in D.C. thought this was going to, it was going to be an ugly, yeah. violent day. Yeah, uh, it was. Thank you so much, Jessica Schneider. Uh, joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman and former Chief of Police in Orlando, Florida, Val Demings. Thanks so much for joining us, um, Congresswoman. You were hiding on the floor of the House chamber where President Biden is going to speak this evening during the insurrection what do you want to hear from President Biden tonight in reference to that deadly day? Well, Jake, it's good to be with you. And I have to say, just watching the footage again and hearing the interview uh, from the officer just brings it all back. Uh, it makes it very, very fresh. As you all know, I was in the gallery uh, in a most unusual place for someone who spent a lot of years in law enforcement, uh, you know, being told by the sergeant at arms to get down on the floor and, and put on our gas mask. Uh, that's why it is so critical that we do a very thorough and complete investigation so we can know uh, 
exactly what went wrong that day. We know that there were a lot of failures in the sharing of information, uh, preparation. Uh, it certainly was not uh, planning in a proactive sense. And so, you know, I am excited about the president's uh, address tonight, and I know he is going to address that very vicious attack on our democracy, mm-hmm. the persons who lost their lives trying to defend it, and what the path looks like moving forward. Take a, a listen to uh, more of that emotional interview with the D.C. police officer uh, responding to the insurrection. It's been very difficult seeing um, elected officials and other individuals uh, kind of whitewash the events of that day or or, uh, downplay what happened. A lot of us are still experiencing the emotional trauma um, and some are still grappling with physical injuries as well. Your colleague, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, tweeted out that interview that that officer did with CNN and said he wonders if House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has an opinion on it. Uh, What do you think of Kevin McCarthy and how he's been handling this? Well, uh, it's very disappointing, Jake, but certainly not a surprising look. You know, uh, courage rises to the top. And obviously, uh, the minority leader who started off that day uh, pleading with the White House to do something uh, and and reminding the then president that he had incited this uh, vicious attack on the Capitol, uh, somehow lost his way and made his way down to South Florida to basically kiss the president's ring. Look, the U.S. Capitol Police uh, risked their lives on that day. Some of them lost uh, their lives. And so the safety of the members of Congress, our staff, those who work in the buildings and the protection of our democracy, the U.S. Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police and others who dropped everything and came to help us that day deserve all of the credit and gratitude for what they did on that day. Maybe if the minority leader has does not get it, maybe he should listen to uh, that interview and be reminded of the pain and trauma, not just that they went through, not just on that day, but are still going through. Do you think the Capitol is secure enough for this event tonight? The the president speaking to a joint session of Congress. It was just a few weeks ago that a, a knife wielding attacker rammed through security and, and killed a different Capitol police officer. I think that the leadership uh, working in conjunction with uh, local uh, and federal agencies have done everything within their power to make sure that tonight is secure. I'm sure it will be, but we cannot be um, weary about this issue. We cannot sleep. We cannot rest. We have to remember every day the potential for attacks is always there. And we have to do everything within our power just to protect the Capitol and secure the Capitol and its grounds, not just tonight, but for the days uh, moving ahead. That's why having this bipartisan commission to really study what went wrong so we can be properly prepared is so very important. You're pushing for the Senate to pass the George Floyd policing bill, which passed the House If the only way to get something passed in the Senate under the rubric, under the under the 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 label of policing reform is for Democrats to make some concessions, such as uh, having to do with qualified immunity, allowing police to continue to have qualified immunity. 
do you think that bill is worth passing? Jake, look, our country has gone through a very tough period. People are grieving, are hurting, we're exhausted. Uh, We're talking about a profession that I did for a lot of years, law enforcement, a profession that We seem to have lost the congresswoman. Uh, I I regret. I really wanted to hear what she had to say. But such is the nature of... It will not solve all of those problems. But it is a major step. It is a major step in the right direction. And so I'm hoping, under the guidance and leadership of Senator Tim Scott, that we're able to protect or or pass uh, this legislation and then begin the critical work of the next step in the process. We lost you during some of your answer, but just a, a, just a yes or no, a, a compromising is, is okay with you uh, as long as it, most of the bill passes? I think we've gotten to a good place right now, Jake, and I think we need to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in the Senate okay. in its current form. All right, Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Sorry about that glitch. Breaking today... Rudy raided. The former president's lawyer is now responding after the Fed searched his New York apartment. Mass cremations and hospitals running out of oxygen. CNN reporting from inside India during this horrific COVID catastrophe. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.